Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today, we are speaking with Dr. Courtney Floyd-James, a nurse researcher, about her dissertation research surrounding Black women's postpartum mental health. Dr. Floyd-James is our first guest that we have found on Twitter, so it's exciting to see this interview come to fruition. And speaking of social media, we're always trying to improve our social media presence, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook by searching Woman Centered Health. And we also wanted to make our plug that you can get our show notes or just keep us recording by becoming a patron of the Woman Centered Health podcast by searching www.patreon.com slash WCH. So hi, Dr. Floyd James. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast today. So We always like to first ask if you could provide a little information about yourself, um, like your background, your educational background, your career, that type of thing. Certainly. So thanks for having me, first of all. Some of my childhood I spent growing up in Germany, so I have been all over Europe and all that good stuff. And then the rest of my childhood, I grew up in South Carolina. So I went to college in the University of South Carolina, where I got my bachelor's in nursing. Then I graduated and decided I wanted to move to Atlanta. So me and my best friends moved here. And I worked as a mother baby nurse for, I don't know, several years. And I decided I wanted to go back to school. And I got my master's at Georgia State University. So I am a pediatric nurse practitioner. After working in private practice for a while and dealing with some moms who had mental health concerns, I decided to go back to school and get my doctorates in nursing at Georgia State University to better inform you know, like the care I provide and to address some issues that I had noticed in mental health of mothers that were the moms to my baby patients. Awesome. So this kind of ties in with our next question that we always ask is, what informs your perspective? Or in other words, why do you do what you do? And what is most valuable to you? Mm -hmm. So working as a pediatric nurse practitioner, especially in private practice at the pediatrician's offices, I would notice that we always assess for developmental progression in the children. But often we were not assessing the mother's mental well-being. Or even if a mother gave me a, a sense that she wasn't doing as well as she'd like to, or there were some mental concerns, if I ever brought up, oh, have you, what do you know about postpartum depression? Or have you ever felt like you have postpartum depression, it would almost immediately go into shutdown mode. Like, nope, can't be depression. Has to be a normal adjusting to motherhood thing. Absolutely not. You know, we don't have depression. You know, just responses like that that were concerning. And of course, 
impacted the care that I could provide, even the resources I could provide. Of course, I still provided some resources for counseling, encouraged them to talk to their providers. Maybe they were more comfortable and had a better relationship with them than they had with me up until that point, especially if it was a young child. So it just really sparked this desire in me to go back to school so I could do research that would end up helping new moms who, for various reasons, were not comfortable in discussing or disclosing um, their feelings of postpartum depression, particularly in Black mothers. So I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I always love the response to that question. It's always so interesting to see what gets people to get their PhD or go to be a doctor. It's just so neat. All right. So like we said, today we're going to talk about Dr. Floyd James's dissertation research, which she started giving us a little bit of a preview. So can you maybe get a little more specific with us and start out by sharing what was your dissertation research about? Definitely. So I finished, so I already had my master's. So I finished my dissertation in three years. Well, my doctorate's in three years, which apparently is pretty good. Wow. You're like a superstar. Right? (laughs) I think when I, like I told you from working in private practice, when I decided to get my degree, I was pretty aware of what I wanted to to do what I was interested in. And so I think it just, when you're passionate about something and really want to serve people, you kind of, it just happens. It just flows. So my dissertation research was about the mental health and functioning of Black mothers in relation to their racial identity. And so to make it make more sense, Black racial identity is how Black people in America feel about being Black in America. And so previous research has found that depending on how you feel about being Black in what we know as a racist country can affect your mental well-being or your mental distress. For example, there are several different racial identities, but one is self-hating. And so these are people who just are not pleased at all about being Black in this country to the point that they hate maybe their Afrocentric features. They just hate being Black. They hate people knowing that they're Black because for whatever reason, it causes problems in their life. And so those people tend to be more depressed and just have a poor mental health. There is a racial identity called Afrocentric, which would be Black people who embrace their ancestry, their African ancestry. They have a sense of Black pride. They have a very established community of those with like minds. And so those people tend to have a more positive, more healthy mental well-being. Research around Black racial identity has been conducted in various populations of adults, so of Black adults, male and female, oftentimes through college-age adults, because during college, that's a time of transition and really developing your own racial identity independent of your parents or your upbringing. And so there has been a lot of research around there and academic success and adapting to college and their mental well-being. But I found that there had been no research around Black racial identity 
and postpartum mental health. And so that is what my dissertation really looked at to see, you know, we know that Black women in America, there's about a 10 to 20% prevalence rate of postpartum depression from those that have disclosed that they have those feelings. But research shows that there's far more than that. And so my thought was, let's figure out a culturally relevant way to assess for postpartum depression symptoms or their risk to develop postpartum depression by looking at their racial identity. And so I also looked at some other non-traditional ways to assess uh, postpartum depression, which is maternal functioning. And then I also looked at how all those factors, Black racial identity, maternal functioning, and postpartum depressive symptoms influenced their bond with their infant. And so basically what I found is that there was no difference between the racial identity groups and postpartum depressive symptoms. So the tool that I use may not be appropriate for Black mothers they may experience depression differently than the current tools assess, which is problematic. But I did find that mothers with the self-hating identity were more likely to have poor functioning. And so functioning abilities can be indicative of postpartum depression. So to put that all in a nutshell, my study did give me some answers, but of course sparked way more questions. (laughs) And I think that's what we find in good research, right? And so just a lot of questions about why there was no particular racial identity group that were more likely to be depressed. Because in previous research, like I said, the um, self-hating, anti-white, there are different racial identities that have a relationship with depression, but that wasn't the case in mothers. So got to do more digging there and figure out, is it the tools? Is it, you know, exactly what was it? And it was reassuring that their functioning abilities, you know, there was some relationship there and we could do more research there in the future as well. I have several questions about what you just said. So I'm trying to make sure I don't bombard you with them all at once. So you talked about what inspired your research overall working in practice and being with and around the mothers of your patients. What inspired you to sort of look at this racial identity piece as part of the postpartum depression? Great question. When I started my doctoral program, There's a lot of work in assessing the state of the science or doing your literature review, which in the moment seems like you're banging your head on a wall because I'm like, I can only go into CINAHL or whatever other database to look up these keywords and nothing new is coming up. But what I did find is that often when Black mothers are included in research about postpartum mental health, there's always a focus on mothers who are, you know, quote unquote, low income, are young teenage mothers, single mothers, just this very one-sided perspective of Black motherhood. And so I didn't care for that, of course, because Black women are not a monolith. We are very complex and diverse. And one 
subset of our population does not fully tell our stories and experiences. So that was one thing that inspired me to just try to be not necessarily a voice for Black mothers, but to reflect our experiences in a holistic or as full of a perspective as I could provide from the experiences of the mothers in my research. And then the other part of that is that when I looked at previous research, and not all, I don't mean to sound like all of the previous research was just very one-sided, but there was a lot of research that just said Black women are less likely to accept treatment. Black women are less likely to do this and do that when compared to white women or when compared to Latinas. And so I feel that white women, Latinas, Black women should all, you know, research should really focus on them and what best culturally addresses their needs, not in comparison to one another, because while we're all women, we're all mothers, there's definitely a common thread, regardless of our race. There are definitely different factors that influence our mental well-being. Of course, with Black women in this country being dealing with structural racism and anti-Black thought and things like that, which cannot be compared to white women or even Latinas, depending on all sorts of factors. So just looking at the state of science in regards to Black mothers and their mental health, I wanted to try to give a more nuanced perspective to their experiences. And that was by including something that is unique to Black mothers, which is their racial identity. I feel like they're, you're giving us so much and I'm like, okay, where do I start unpacking first? Oh no, so much. I felt the same way doing my dissertation. Like this is so much. Who chose all these variables? Yeah. And I think you highlight something really that's at the critical of research is we're so programmed that you have to have like comparison groups. And so often that's how researchers look at it. Like, well, how does it compare by racial group? And so I think you make a very good point about the flaw of how of the current state of research. And so I think one, I just want to highlight that I think that's super critical. And then my other from like the research standpoint, you're talking about these things you're measuring. And for our listeners who I know that especially within the depression world, there's a bunch of measures, folks can be very wedded to their certain measures. So I'm curious if you can maybe tell us how did you measure racial identity? How did you measure what scale did you use for depression? Or how did you measure functional capacity? Just so our listeners have also a little bit of a frame for that. Definitely. So to measure racial identity, I used CROSS's racial identity scale, which has been, there are several different iterations. So I used the most recent, which I believe is the third. It was developed, I want to say in the seventies by CROSS and then Worrell and other researchers have kind of tweaked it. And so from several questions, you can determine their racial identity based on different scores that they have among these subscales. For depression, I use the Edinburgh Postnatal Depression Scale, which has also been used 
throughout research and even clinically. And there are different thresholds or different scores which determine if someone is not likely to be depressed, has mild symptoms of depression, or have severe symptoms of depression. And so it's important to remember that that tool just looks at symptoms. It's not a what we call in clinical practice a diagnostic tool. Just because someone's score is really elevated and says this person has severe depression, you can't make a diagnosis on that. You have to then assess them uh, more thoroughly and decide if they are truly depressed or have postpartum depression or not. And so, of course, my study just looked at their symptoms of depression. In my study, if women did have signs of moderate to severe depression, I did offer them to contact me if they felt the need to do so. But I also provided resources for a hotline so they could speak with someone about their signs of depression, as well as a resource that would link them with a mental health provider in their area if they wanted to take the next step and find mental health services without needing me, of course, in that. And so the next tool I used was to measure maternal functioning, which I use Barkin's Index of Maternal Functioning. And Dr. Jennifer Barkin was also one of my committee members. And so that tool is really measuring mothers' functioning abilities is relatively new in the literature. And so it is seen as another way to measure for depressive symptoms without directly saying you're depressed or you don't bond well with your baby, things like that. Oftentimes, your mental state affects your physical functioning abilities. And so that's just another way to see, okay, how is she doing? Because some people aren't comfortable in saying, I feel sad or I cry for no reason. The emotional aspects of depression, some people just aren't able to function. And so that's another way of measuring that. And then the last tool for bonding was the maternal attachment inventory. It hasn't been used as much in research, but it was one of the only tools I could find that was like a self-guided questionnaire and didn't require me to be in person and monitor the bond or the interaction between a mother and their child. Because, of course, I'm doing this dissertation in the middle of COVID. Well, I won't say in the middle because who knows when it'll really be over. But in the beginning, (laughs) like March, April, that's when I was doing my dissertation. So I couldn't be in person doing these. So those are all the tools I used. So just one more kind of nuts and boltsy sort of question is then what can you give us a little bit of background about what your sample looked like? Definitely. So I used Qualtrics so that anyone interested could fill out these screening questions, per se, that would determine if someone was able to take part in the study. And so my goal was to include mothers that were at the same risk level for postpartum depression. And a lot of the questions allowed for that. So my sample varied greatly in their demographic characteristics 
my sample consisted of 116 self-identified Black mothers who ranged in age from 18 to 41 years old, and the average age was around 29 years old. The inf- their infants were 1 to 12 months old, with the average age of the infants being around five months. And so because I didn't do a comparison group based on race, I wanted to look at the variance or the differences within Black mothers. I had a very heterogeneous, as we say in the research world, varied demographic characteristics within the sample. And so the majority of the Black mothers in my sample were married or cohabitating. They had a college degree. They worked full time and their total household income was above the poverty level. And so immediately I felt like I was accurately reflecting Black women to show that we are very complex and diverse and different because I I touched on My sample had mothers who were living below the poverty line, but also those who were above and had postdoctoral education and were making over $250,000. So it just showed a really diverse sample, even though it was solely Black mothers. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about racial identity specifically. What are the questions like in that that tool? And also, how has that tool been used in other types of health research? Like, what have they found? The cross-racial identity scale or cross-social attitude scale, you can call it either one. Some of the questions asked, for example, are, as an African-American, life in America is good for me. Or too many Blacks glamorize the drug trade and fail to see opportunities that don't involve crime. I have a strong feeling of hatred and disdain for all white people. So those are just a few examples of the questions within the scale. It's a Likert scale tool. And so you can strongly agree all the way to strongly agree with each statement. And so depending on how strongly a person endorses or supports this statement determines what racial identity they have, whether that be assimilation, which means they feel like it's more important to identify as an American as opposed to an African-American or a Black person versus an anti-white racial identity, which they are very, they have a great sense of pride in being Black, but they just truly don't care for anyone white. Nothing is ever all or nothing. So of course you can kind of feel that way. You can be neutral about something. I don't agree or disagree Or you can be like, that's not me at all. Or "Eh, I kind of feel that way, but not always. So it allows to really reflect the complexity of racial identity. And that, yes, everyone in my sample was Black, but they all did not have the same feelings about being Black in America. So when we talked about earlier, like the comparison groups, simply by race, it doesn't truly reflect the complexity of people in general, whether that's 
all white people, all Latinas, all black mothers. There's so much complexity within black mothers alone that simply comparing them to other groups of mothers by their race is not helpful at all, unless the research is really going to address structural racism and how anti-Blackness really affects Black people in America. And I'd also like to add that this tool has been kind of changed to be used by various racial groups. So there have been studies using it in Asian people. I want to say it's Asian Americans. I truly have not looked at those scales as in-depth as the one for Black people, but I know there is a tool for white Americans, Asian Americans, and Latin Americans. Again, I haven't looked at the results in that research, but the tool can be used in various racial groups. And so just one thing that I wanted to add about my sample uh, that was really striking to me is, like I said, there were some questions to determine each willing participants or each interested participants risk for postpartum depression because I wanted everyone to be on the same risk level. And so I did ask some questions about prior history of mental illness or different factors that the research has shown that increases a mother's chance of experiencing postpartum depression, like if they were separated from their infant, if they were discharged home, but the baby had to stay in the hospital at the NICU. Um, of course, there are some facilities that will allow the mother to stay in the hospital with their baby in a special unit, even though they're in the NICU. So I still allow those mothers to participate. But just saying, I did look at different reasons why I did try to weed out different factors that can influence their mental well-being. And so initially, there were 213 mothers that were interested in participating in the study. 42 could not participate because they either had a previous mental illness, a pre-existing mental illness, or they had been diagnosed with postpartum depression before. Often the mother said they felt like they were depressed, but nobody had really looked into it. Some said they told their provider they felt depressed and were told, no, it sounds like what you're going through is, is normal. That's expected. Or they disclosed that they felt depressed and their provider just gave them a prescription and not really offering any counseling services or recommendations or anything of that nature. And so some women didn't feel comfortable you know, taking a prescription, they didn't know how that would affect their breastfeeding or different reasons why they were like, ah, I don't feel really comfortable. But they never told their provider because their provider just shut it down and they didn't feel comfortable disclosing anything further. Then one more thing about my sample, 29% of the 116 mothers in my sample had symptoms of moderate to severe depression, the majority of which were at least four months postpartum. So this really sparked my desire to not only be a nurse scientist, but a change agent, because for there to be that many women who 
just by completing this Edinburgh postnatal depression scale showed that they had signs of depression, but for whatever reason, was never offered treatment, never decided to be connected with care. What I didn't go into the full details. I just, again, provided them resources. But when we think about mothers who are receiving Medicaid during their pregnancy, depending on what state you live in, determines, determines how long you'll receive care after you've given birth. So if you're four, five, six months postpartum, you may never get assessed by a women's health provider again to even say, I just started having these thoughts a few weeks ago and they're five months postpartum. So there's also not only a need to do more research to learn more about Black women's experiences with depression, but there also needs to be policy work done to really better serve mothers who are at risk for depression, which all of us are at risk. Anyone can experience postpartum depression. So that's just another thing that I realized. How was the, so you talked about with this racial identity scale, I think I, you kind of had like terms, I don't know if I'm remembering them correctly, like self-loathing or Afrocentric. What was the distribution like? and your sample related to this racial identity? Great question. So when you use the racial identity scale, it is recommended that you, so each person can have a racial identity score or like a dominant racial identity, but you don't want to look at everything so simply So to explain what I mean, so there are six different racial identity attitudes, okay? There's assimilation, which is you prefer to identify as an American or identify in any other way that you have commonalities with people outside of your race. So whether that's religion, whether that's nationality, that's what you choose to identify as. So that would be someone who's like, no, I'm not African-American. I'm an American. Then there is the miseducated identity, which is someone who endorses the stereotypes about Black people. There may be many in this country, but one in particular, most Black people are lazy and on Medicaid or on food stamps. So that Black person who has the miseducated attitude would endorse those ideas. Like you said, the self-hate, which I discussed earlier, anti-white, which can often be caused by a recent encounter with a white racist. And so a Black person has had this encounter with a white racist, and now they're just completely anti-white and have a strong hate or disdain for white people. That may also be a time when that Black person is more so engaged in Black pride or Afrocentric activities. So getting more in touch with their African ancestry and those ideals and beliefs. Then we have the Afrocentric identity and the multiculturalist identity. Multiculturalist is someone who is very proud of being Black, you could say very Afrocentric, 
but they also recognize, respect, and engage with people of other cultures and other groups. So whether that's Jewish people, white people, those in the LGBTQIA plus community, just very open to respecting and engaging with other groups of people. And so because there are six different attitudes, one person, whether you're Black, white, Latina, whatever, nobody is ever just an assimilationist. We are very nuanced people. We are very rarely just, oh, you know, I only drink Coke and not Pepsi. I prefer Coke, but if I'm in the Midwest, I might drink a Pepsi just for whatever reason. So no one is ever one dimensional. So when using this racial identity tool, it's recommended that you do what's called cluster analysis. So you look at the sample overall. So I did not look to see did participant 25, what was their racial identity? They have a score for each different attitude. And from that, you compare them to the other mothers within the group and you get clusters. So you get an overall sense of the racial identity profiles within the sample. So instead of looking at this one mother's highest score is assimilation, so we're going to put her in assimilation, you look at each score for each identity in relation to the other five. So (laughs) that could have been a dissertation in itself. But um, so my sample had six clusters and some of the clusters do not even have the same name as the racial identity attitude. So like, for example, I had a conflicted cluster and that was because um, the mothers within that cluster, they were not multiculturalist at all, but they were very Afrocentric. They were very anti-white. They even had some ideas that endorsed self-hating. They were also had ideas of assimilation. So it's a very nuanced identity. Like you can definitely see why it's important to identify as an American instead of an African-American, but yet you can still enjoy being Black while not liking white people. So you know, the the hierarchical cluster analysis just really allows you to see the complexity of, of one person or certain groups within a sample that is just Black. That's really interesting. Thank you. So I think the one thing that I wanted to loop us back to were your findings. And you had mentioned previously kind of like a general some things that it surprised you, some things that didn't. In the in the direction I'd like us to go, and especially thinking about the phone call that we had previous to this, is you had said that with this racial identity, there wasn't really, I don't know if relationship is the right word to that or an indicator to that in the Edinburgh scale. Mm-hmm. But you did see... And maybe I think you had mentioned maybe the word surprised in this conversation about how it was there was some connection to the functionality scale and the racial identity. And so part one is 
I'm interested in that relationship, the racial identity functioning. And then I would like to get into with Stephanie's blessing as well is, and you had mentioned how there's a difference between people like saying, oh, I feel sad versus like they're functioning, but really dissecting that functional part and how providers, maybe we need to shift our thinking and in this scale versus functioning and how that relates to all the things. Yes. Previous research looking at racial identity and mental well-being or mental distress showed that when they, when the researchers did that cluster analysis that I was talking about, where your sample is divided in groups of participants with uh, similar racial identity attitudes, that depending on the label that each cluster had, there would be a difference. So if, for example, and I'm totally making this up. So if you had five clusters in your study of adult Black men, and you found that the assimilation and the self-hating cluster had the highest level of depression, but the Afrocentric and multiculturalist cluster had the highest level of mental well-being. That's similar to research previously done, that there would be a difference in symptoms of depression depending on their racial identity group. My study did not find any differences of postpartum depressive symptoms between the racial identity groups. And so that could mean several things. That could mean that this tool is not effective in assessing for postpartum depression in Black mothers. It could mean that, you know, there's more to play. There's more to consider that influences Black mothers' mental health, whether that's, you know, the hormonal aspect of it. Just so many questions that came from that. How are we measuring postpartum depression? The tool that I use particularly looks at the emotional aspect because it was developed in Ireland. So that's a very Eurocentric uh, perspective of depression. So when looking at Black mothers, although 29% of the mothers in my sample showed signs of moderate to severe depression, it did not differ based on their racial identity. So what does that mean? And so that would, of course, require more research, especially qualitative research to better understand Black mothers' experiences with depression. Because research has shown that mothers in Africa tend to have more somatic symptoms or more physical symptoms of depression instead of, you know, expressing feelings of sadness or crying without reason. They have expressed feeling like ants are crawling in their head and won't stop. They have expressed really digestive issues, just a lot of nausea, vomiting, indigestion, things like that. So it may be possible that there was no difference because this isn't a culturally appropriate tool to assess depression in Black women anyway. So those were some of my thoughts from uh, racial identity and functioning. And I don't mean to to sound like 
Af- I know that Africa, the continent of Africa is huge and like the largest continent that we have. So I don't mean to sound like, oh, African mothers feel this way. But those countries that felt that way are Egypt, Morocco, I want to say Nigeria, and a few other countries that in the research shows that they have more somatic or more physical symptoms, which has been shown in research in other cultures. So in some Asian countries, they the, the women in general, not necessarily postpartum uh, mothers, but women in general do not express emotional symptoms of depression. It's all somatic. It's all physical symptoms. And so if you use an emotional tool to assess for depression in those populations, you're not going to capture those who are depressed because they experience depression completely different. So that may be the case with these Black mothers that were in my study. And as far as racial identity and functioning, yes, my the group that was labeled as self-hating, which means, again, that they really don't like the fact that they are a Black woman living in America. They really hate themselves just on that fact alone. They hate anything that makes them stand out as a Black person in this country. That group had the lowest level of functioning abilities between all the other groups. And so that was surprising to me because all other research, there had been differences among the racial identity groups in depressive symptoms, emotional depressive symptoms, but mine did not. Mine had differences in their functioning abilities. So again, functioning is a physical ability. So that also lends to the idea that Black women may experience depression differently. And so by comparing their functioning abilities, there was some, you know, some difference there, meaning that for clinical practice, of course, there would need to be much more research done to even think about impacting clinical practice. But that highlighted for me that nurses, providers need to understand the really the influence of being Black in a racist country and how that not only affects our mental health, but our physical health as well. And I think that's often overlooked or swept under the rug. But the fact that the mothers in my sample that hated themselves because they were Black had the lowest functioning abilities says a lot. And of course, more work needs to be done there. Like I said, the self-hating cluster had the poorest maternal functioning abilities. And then the anti-white cluster was also statistically significantly low. And then the assimilated and miseducated cluster had the highest functioning ability. And so there I can see between self-hating and anti-white, those clusters are either very angry And often in the anti-white, people with the anti-white identity are consumed with anger from either just experiencing a racist interaction or anti-Black interaction or just living in this country, especially in 2020, can cause a lot of distress 
And so self-hating, of course, that if you hate yourself, that's also related to your self-esteem. So I could see how that could definitely negatively affect someone's mental well-being and their functioning. What was also shocking for me is the assimilated and miseducated had the highest level of functioning. And so, again, these are Black mothers, Black women who endorse the idea that you should be American first and not African-American. They endorse these negative stereotypes about Black people. And so for that group to have the highest functioning scores, of course, this wasn't a qualitative study. I didn't interview any of these mothers, so I don't know why these findings are the way that they are. It almost seems opposite of what you would expect, like for someone to endorse these negative stereotypes about being Black when they are Black, but they have the highest functioning abilities. It, it lends to the idea that possibly assimilation is a coping mechanism to be able to function living in a racist country. But of course, more research would need to be done there, possibly a mixed method study, which I may have planned for. So like I said, I did get some answers, but of course it sparked many more questions. So Dr. Floyd James, I think all of this is super fascinating. So can you speak to, and again, I know based off of like the conversation we had before, do you have some ideas about maybe there's a cultural piece or what's happening as to why functioning versus the, like the functional scale versus a depressive scale and like why one seems to be, I don't want to use the word better, but maybe more representative or had different results. Like, why do you think that it had different results for you? That is a great question. When thinking about how we develop tools and if a tool is appropriate for who we are going to use it on, this tool that I use for postpartum depression was developed in Edinburgh, Scotland. It was created with a very Eurocentric perspective and very much used, you know, and developed with white women. Although it has been successfully used in various cultures, including Black women, and they have found oppressive symptoms in Black women, it's, for whatever reason, it's still not sufficient, in my opinion. Because, again, there was no significant results between racial identity attitudes and their postpartum depressive symptoms, which depression in other age groups that were not necessarily postpartum mothers is consistent in the literature. So that shows to me that more needs to be done to adequately assess postpartum depression in Black mothers. And the fact that Black women are often ignored by their healthcare providers. And so Based on that and the very tragic history of experimentation on Black women in this country for the sake of medicine or whatever, which is just atrocious and a tragedy, but based on that long history, there is a lot of distrust between Black mothers and the healthcare system. And I mean, what is even currently going on today? And so there has to be another way to effectively serve this population because Black women are at high risk for depression. 
and then to assess them in a way that is non-threatening and accurate so that they can be linked with care. And so part of that solution could be by assessing their functional abilities. But like I said, it's still relatively new in the research, but it is very promising because my study did show that there was a difference in functioning abilities depending on their racial identity. That's one thing. The second is that assessing functional ability should not be the only screening tool for postpartum depression. The creator of the tool says that we should assess women's functioning abilities in addition to other tools to assess for postpartum depression. So functional abilities and maybe emotional, an emotional assessment tool or functioning abilities, an emotional assessment and a physical symptom tool. I think this study, even just in looking at racial identity attitudes, we see that people are very complex. Mothers are very complex. So to just think that you can use a emotional assessment tool to accurately and adequately capture any mothers that come into your practice that are experiencing depression, I think it's just, um, I don't want to say foolish, but kind of naive. I think it has to be a more holistic approach, not just for Black mothers, but all mothers, because no one is one dimensional. So no person only has emotional symptoms of depression. I think we need a more holistic approach in assessing postpartum depression in all mothers, possibly to include functioning abilities, emotional symptoms, as well as physical signs of depression, which of course would require more research, but which I feel like I say repeatedly. But I think that's kind of what my research findings said to me, as well as previous research. Well, and two, how many women have been told you don't talk about this or suck it up, you're fine. And so it shows up in more physical ways because you're not going to admit it. You're not going to talk about it. And so we internalize it and it manifests as digestive issues or whatever. And so I think you're right that this is a very important thing that we need to think about when we're talking about screening for depression. Yeah. Depression. Yeah. Affects everybody very differently. I was just going to say like even functioning abilities in itself is very nuanced when thinking about cultural differences. And so for black women, Dr. Woods Giscon Bay developed from her qualitative research found that black women have a, what's called a superwoman schema in which regardless of what is going on, regardless if you feel like the world is on your shoulders and you're about to collapse at any moment, Black women feel the need to persevere and continue to do all the things and fulfill all the roles and help everyone else, even to their own downfall. And so often Black women put others first and fulfill all their duties and responsibilities before they put themselves first. So even though functioning was significant in my study, I could also see how just assessing a, a Black mother's functioning abilities would not be holistic either, because there are definitely women who, you know, may have severe depression or may have anxiety and all these other mood disorders and all these 
things going on, but they will still continue to fulfill their role. They will still continue to go to work. They will still continue to get the kids because sometimes there is no one else to do that. And also, if I don't, then I'm a bad mother. You know, there are these two ideas around functioning that even just assessing that would not be adequate for Black mothers and probably most mothers. So this is kind of getting more out of your research, but I'm sure that you've thought about it. Especially you mentioned that if a participant in your sample screened positive for like moderate or severe depression, you would link them up with providers. I was reading a book recently. I think it was Hood Feminism and uh, Mickey Kendall, I think. She was talking about huge shortage we have in our country of psychologists who are black, especially black women, but just black in general. I mean, obviously, that's a true of a lot of professions. But I was kind of astonished by like how few so I see that as a big barrier. Maybe in Atlanta, it's not as big of a barrier, but the rest of the country, I'm sure it is. (laughs) Did you have that experience or just in your clinical practice? Like, do you have that issue. I'm assuming as a black woman, you you might want to go to a black psychologist. Right. Yes. I, I have realized that I am very spoiled by living in Atlanta and definitely Metro Atlanta. Metro Atlanta is very different from the rest of Georgia. So if you live in South or North Georgia, coastal Georgia, it will not at all look like Atlanta. And that was also part of my research is that the majority of the mothers were from lived in areas surrounding Metro Atlanta. And so their exposure to various groups of people and their saturation in Blackness would be completely different than someone who is from South Georgia. So that can influence their racial identity and all these things as well. And so, yes, you know, Atlanta is very different. I have looked and I use Therapy for Black Girls uh, is a podcast, but also a website in which there are resources for mental health care providers who are Black. And they will match you up with if you're looking for family counseling, if you're looking for relationship counseling, just yourself counseling, different types of therapy, Black therapists who are available in your area based on your zip code. And so, The Atlanta area, I mean, there's an abundance of providers. Now, if they're all available or if they are all taking clients or how your insurance works, that's a whole nother issue to address access to care. But definitely, I would say there is more Black mental health care providers in Atlanta than most places. My family is from and still lives in South Carolina, and I know... I don't, to be honest, I don't think anyone in my immediate family has a black healthcare provider, period. So while there are, especially a lot of black women get higher education and and are becoming physicians and mental healthcare providers and nurse practitioners and doing all these great things in medicine, there will probably never be enough to fully care for the Black population in this country. And so while I am definitely an advocate for, you know, Black providers taking care of Black patients, that can't be the only solution because who knows when we'll be able to fulfill that need. And so I think, well, not I think, I know that 
medicine, nursing, all these institutions need to listen to their Black providers to really understand what is needed, just to put another thing on Black people to address all these issues that are going on. But I I think we're beyond this cultural sensitivity training and all these things. I think we need to listen to Black providers and really understand, and Black researchers, to really understand what needs to be done to address the disparities that are really based in racism and structural racism. I hope that answered your question because I feel like I went way left a little bit. No, and it was kind of a weird question. I just wanted to sort of acknowledge this big issue as our clinicians might be listening like, oh, this is great. I'll maybe try to think about that more. But then when they come to referring someone, you might have some issues to just be upfront about really. And I'm in Iowa City, Iowa, which is fairly diverse for Iowa. (laughs) There are no black psychologists or therapists here. So And I think one of the, if we ever want to look for the silver lining with COVID is that a lot of therapy sessions and counseling is done via telehealth. So if someone has the ability to have a smartphone where they can zoom in for a session, that would increase someone's access to a provider that looks like them. But of course, there is not an infinite amount of providers. So you still run into the issue where I can't accept any more new patients or I don't accept your insurance. And then, you know, providers still are limited to to working within the area that they are licensed. So within the state licensure and all that stuff. And it looks like it's Dr. Joy Harden Bradford. That is exactly right. And her podcast is amazing. Yes, it's therapy for Black girls, but I feel like Everyone could benefit by listening. She has experts who come in to speak about their field. So it is, I mean, I've learned so much about, but podcast really explains like different therapies that are available. And one that was really intriguing for me, this is a tangent, but one that was really like, oh, that's so cool for me was this new treatment for PTSD, where you slowly expose someone to that trigger repeatedly and they journal about it. And then they're in the office and you do, I always think of like criminal minds when the really smart guy would like kind of hypnotize somebody and they remember like every detail about what's going on. It's kind of like that, but they're in the office and reliving their experience that like triggers them when they go to the grocery store. So they can slowly, their anxiety level slowly decreases the more and more they're exposed. And there's some real term for it. Is that EMDR? That's probably right. I don't know. Yeah. I was just looking at some of the topics like sex positivity through the lifespan, managing suicidal thoughts. Yeah. Woman agency and pleasure. There was one about colorism that was really good, especially like raising daughters because colorism is a thing in the black community where lighter skinned people are more beautiful or more this, more that. And so raising a black child, especially, I think it's more heavily affects women. I mean, it can affect men too, but definitely with young women and their self-esteem and realizing their worth and value is beyond their complexion and how to instill that in a child. Like who would ever, if I went to a white provider, yeah, they wouldn't, 
you know, if I said, oh, my child doesn't think she's pretty because she's dark skin or when my child goes to school, they'll say, you know, oh, you're cute for a dark skin girl, which is what I often got growing up in, when I was in South Carolina. Like, oh, you're cute, but, you know, for a dark skin girl. Like, what? What does that mean? So even how to address that, how to deal with that, how to still have your daughter feel valued and wonderful and amazing despite all the ridiculousness that she will encounter because of her complexion. And so the podcast, which anyone can access, of course, does not take place of building a relationship with a mental health care provider, which she says on every session. But, you know, it's very helpful. Yeah. Awesome. I'm going to bring it back and build on this conversation with providers. And what is the one message that you, or, you know, the main message or what message would you want for providers to take away from your research? Oh, that's a good one. Cause there are so many things, but I think the main thing is that each provider, even if they're black, white, Latinx, is that they need to be aware of their own racial identity attitude, because that really affects how they interact with their own patients or their own, you know, racist ideas or their own anti-white, anti-black, anti-whatever ideas and get help. Because I don't think cultural sensitivity training is really enough to change how someone behaves. So I don't know if there are, I need to look into that, but I don't know if there are like therapies or counseling or whatever, but I know that a person, a provider cannot inherently think that a group of people is lesser than because of whatever superficial reason that they would still give that person excellent care. Like I, it's just not possible. And so addressing each person's own ignorance and racist beliefs needs to happen in order to really serve anybody that walks through your door fairly, justly, and adequately. So that would be the overarching theme that I found. So building on that, I think the term you use, so we've previously talked about like unconscious bias or implicit bias and how you can have your implicit bias checked. I think it's like the Harvard website. But I'm just wondering, do you have a resource that maybe there's a different resource other than the implicit bias that folks could go to check this and see where they're at on the racial identity scale? So for me, implicit bias just wasn't sufficient for me. And lately, I've seen more about this. I follow Dr. Monica McLemore. I don't know if you all follow her on Twitter, but she is absolutely amazing in reflecting and being the voice for the underserved. But implicit bias implies that People are doing things and they don't know why they're doing them. And I just, that's just not sufficient in 2020. I think if you are racist or if you do racist things or have racist beliefs and you mistreat people because of that, you're very well aware that you're doing that. And I don't think anybody should get a pass because they're unconsciously doing these things. I think it's a very conscious act to mistreat someone and you know why you're doing it. I just think we're beyond the, you know, unconscious thing. So the racial identity attitude scale is actually available like online, but it's very complex to even 
you know, I'm a scientist. Yay. So I kind of figured out how to do that and score everything. And well, you know, SPSS and Stata helped me with that. But so a tool that just any and everyone could use, I would have to do some research on that. But I really think it's more so a self-reflection and listening to the feedback that others provide you, Um, especially if you're a mentor in medicine. I think often in medicine and nursing or whatever, if you have a mentee, you should reflect on the advice you're giving them and why. I think the why is the main part. Like, you know, I don't know. It's a very complex thing, but I, I'm just beyond the fact that this is unconscious and we're doing things and we we're not aware of it. I think people are aware. They just do it so easily that now it's just automatic, maybe. So we have a question from one of our wonderful patrons, Linda. She asked, in my limited experience in pediatrics, Black women were more likely than white women to have generation or familial support at office visits. How does this bode for postpartum mental health? So that plays into the support system that we have. And so, again, not all Black mothers are the same. So some definitely lean on the support of their mother, aunts, grandmother. You know, it's very generational, while some may not have that and lean on their community. But I will say, yes. And that's a really Afrocentric tradition is that, and often I still find this in my African American patients, you know, from Africa, and then my Jamaican American families, just different cultural ideas and beliefs is that several generations still live in one household. Or definitely once a woman has a baby or is pregnant, the mother, the grandmother, aunties, everybody comes in and and takes care of the mom and the baby. So that definitely influences, you know, her support system and how easily she adapts to motherhood. On the com- so it can be a very positive and supportive way because there's so much support and love and advice. So of course that can be a pro. It can also be a con because I remember my mother and grandmother definitely came and helped me adjust, but they may have a very different way of what parenting looks like or what breastfeeding looks like or what you need to do. And so it can be very helpful, but it can also be a time of, look, mom, I know you did it this way or look, grandma, no, no, nobody breastfed back then and you don't know what this is about, but let's learn together. So I definitely, yes, have found that in the literature as well as my own personal experience and working with my patients, my families, that Black women do tend to lean on prior generations for support and adjustment to motherhood. And even people who aren't family that we consider aunts, I probably have five or six aunts that aren't any biological relation to me, but they are definitely my aunts and they've helped me tremendously. So yes, I would agree with that. Thank you. And thanks, Linda. (laughs) So how do or how can your findings relate to how clinicians communicate with Black women or words of there some other messages you'd want to throw out there for our listeners? Yes. So recently the CDC has started this campaign called Hear Her, really based on the maternal mortality 
statistics in this country, which are ridiculously high, especially in Black uh, mothers compared to other countries. And often that Black women, women in general, mothers in general, but definitely Black women, Black mothers, their concerns are often ignored or dismissed in, by healthcare providers. And so this campaign is really like, hey, this woman has been with her body for as long as she has been alive. Please listen to her when she tells you that something is wrong, which almost seems like a duh, no brainer. Like I'm with my body. I know if something is wrong, but apparently we need a campaign in this country to really ask providers to listen to their patients. And so I think that is another takeaway is that we need to listen to women, to mothers when they express ideas or say things that, you know, even if you think, oh, she's, she has all this support or she's very educated. There's no way that she could be depressed or her husband is very supportive. I don't, you know, she, he's here for every visit, but she's saying that she doesn't feel supported. Maybe it's just hormonal or whatever, you know, leave all of what you think at the door because your patient, the mother really knows herself better than anybody in this world. And so I always feel like even if I give them every resource available, even if I think, oh, she's probably not depressed, but let me give her these different counselors or whatever. I wouldn't say that, but the worst that could happen is that she uses one of those resources and gets help, whether that's reassurance that everything is okay and what she's experiencing is normal, or she is depressed and gets the help that she needs anyway. Uh, There's never a negative to listening to someone and addressing their concerns instead of dismissing them. And so I think that's the main thing is just listen to women and allow them to be in a safe space where they can be able to disclose things to their provider, which I know is not as simple as saying, let's do it so it is done. But um, just figuring out what changes can be made in one's own clinical practice, whether it's the practice overall or their individual interaction with their patient to allow it to be more safe and for them to be more approachable. That allows a woman to be comfortable enough to express feelings that some cultures stigmatize or may make them appear less than the ideal mother, quote unquote, because I don't ever think that. So on our phone call, you had talked about part of the inspiration for doing the work you're doing. And you had told us how you were a pediatrics nurse MP who then went back to get your doctorate. And then instead of, you know, I think someone's natural, if you were like, oh, I'm a pediatric person, you'd think that's what their doctorate, right? You would do something around peds. And I remember making this comment to Stephanie too, once we got off the phone that, You, though, however, recognized ACEs and you talked about ACEs and that also looping into why you're doing the work you're doing. And so I I just I loved it so much. I really wanted you to share with our listeners. Why would you start in PEDS, you know, but then 
go to moms as kind of the surrogate way of impacting kiddos? Definitely. So thanks for reminding me of that. So for anyone who may not know, ACEs are adverse childhood events. And so we find that depending on how many ACEs a child has, that affects them socially as an adult and their overall development and well-being even into adulthood. And so part of you know, the goal in pediatric nursing is addressing these ACEs or even assessing for these ACEs to provide the support that is necessary so that the child can flourish despite whatever they have encountered. My idea is that often ACEs involve the family environment. So instead of assessing for ACEs after something has happened, how could we hopefully prevent ACEs from ever occurring? And so the mental health and well-being of the parents can often influence a child's environment. And so one thing that influences parents' ability to care for their child is their mental well-being. And so I felt that assessing mother's postpartum depression and finding unique and innovative ways to address that and hopefully get them connected to care prevents any negative impact that their mental health could have on their child. So that was my idea. Like, I don't like to be a reactionary person. I like to be a proactive person. And so ideally, no child would have an adverse childhood event, but that's not realistic. But I would like to help their parents as much as possible to provide a thriving environment for their child. And that's one way is to make sure that their mental health is is priority. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. I loved it when we talked on the phone and I really wanted to our listeners to have that connection. And I think this is also where we're seeing that tide and talking about resilience. That's kind of coming under fire with research. Like why are we researching resilience? Why aren't we instead focusing on why do folks have to be resilient to begin with? And I think that that's what you're getting at, right? Is like, you know, here we have ACEs in it. I mean, and that's so connected to all of these health outcomes. And instead of saying, let's look at them and what it's doing and instead say, well, how can we keep the ACEs from happening to begin with as a way for helping your peds population? I just loved that. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Floyd James, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and your commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. Do you have any last thoughts you would like to add before we end? You know, I the questions that you all have are really amazing. And thank you. I mean, just you could have been on my committee with all the questions that you have that make me think. But I just want people to, if they take away anything from this session, it's that no group of people are the same, even if they have similar characteristics. So all three of us are women and wives, but we definitely have different experiences, even within being women and being wives and being nurses, being scientists, you know? So even though we like to find commonalities among groups of people, don't let that be 
what determines how you treat someone or the assumptions that you may make based off of that. As providers, we need to acknowledge the complexity of people, whether they're in a group or individually, and as well as our complexity within ourselves and how that affects how we interact with others so that we can provide more informed and hopefully unbiased care to anyone that we cross paths with. And really, I hope that everyone acknowledges the importance of postpartum mental health and the work that needs to be done in addressing that in this country. I think mental health overall is often swept under the rug and an afterthought, but it is very much the saying always goes, if you see someone with a broken leg, you see the broken leg and you want to fix it. But if people are having mood or anxiety disorders, you can't tell always. And so we need to think about people who may be suffering in silence from mental health issues and fight for them just as much as we would fight for anyone's access to health care. Mental health care is absolutely just as necessary as all other arms of health care. Thank you so much, Dr. Floyd James. This was absolutely wonderful. And I could talk to you forever about this stuff. So thank you. Thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Oh